Welcome to Living Strong, the flip side of adversity with your host, Dr. Veerdra Jackson. On our program, we explore the flip side of every story. And when you open yourself up to both sides, you'll realize that there are life lessons, powerful tools, and so much more. Now, here is Dr. Veerdra Jackson. Hello, and welcome to Living Strong, the flip side of adversity. I am Dr. Veerdra Jackson, the CEO and creative behind Living Strong Consulting. And in much of our work around trauma, uh, social justice, as well as equity, we are oftentimes pursuing, explaining, trying to unpack the tension between trauma and racial social injustice. And I have been excited about this conversation we are going to have this evening with my very special guest. I am so excited about um, her expertise, her integrity, and her commitment to very powerful work. Her name is May Lee. And allow me to just share just a snapshot of her credentials <laughs> that I could fit in a few moments. But we are going to share more about how you can follow her and find out more about her work and see her full bio. But let me tell you, May Lee is an award-winning broadcast journalist and the host of The May Lee Show. She is also an adjunct professor at USC and the founder of Lotus Media House. And she has been both a U.S.-based and international anchor, host, correspondent, and producer. May was introduced to racism at a very young age, which as I read her bio, it resonated with me because my earliest experiences started at the age of five, of recognizing that otherism, that, um, that isolation experience. And May shifted and turned and has utilized her early experiences to fuel her the opportunity to become a prominent voice in the effort to combat anti-Asian hate that exploded during COVID-19. But as we will share, it didn't start there. At the start of 2020, May's production company, Lotus Media House, partnered with Next Shark, the leading Asian online news source, to launch the May Lee Show. Each episode of her show sits down with some of the most impactful and relevant Asians in the U.S. and around the world who are boldly enhancing and elevating Asian voices and issues. She's recognized for her powerful voice for Asian Americans, and May was named one of Forbes 40 Over 40 Women Leading the Way in Impact in July of 2021. May has been working with various organizations, companies, and media outlets to raise more awareness of AAPI history and experiences. And tonight, we're having a brave conversation about the flip side of trauma and PTSD that people of color, 
who are still in the fight against racism, bigotry, and hate. And not only are we going to unpack clarity and raise awareness, but we hope to also talk about how can we find hope, solutions, and possibilities on the other side of what is a heavy truth. So I've shared with you just a snippet of her bio, and I'm sure knowing me, you know that I've been excited about this conversation. So welcome to the flip side of adversity, May Lee. Thank you so much. What a wonderful introduction. And uh, it's really, really great to be here. And I also look forward to this conversation. Thank you so much for taking time out of what I know is a busy schedule. Um, And I actually just want to jump right into our conversation by acknowledging that um, we had a very important anniversary um, just, uh, just within this month as well as continued incidences that are plaguing our media outlets. And it resonated with me when you uh, shared the title for this episode, being trauma and PTSD of people of color. And as I shared in our intro, we are often at Living Strong identifying and wrestling with the tension between the historical trauma, as well as recognizing the racial and social injustice. So I want to ask, how do you define trauma in the context of the work and the fight within racism, hate, and bigotry? Whew, that is, you know, a heavy load for sure. And we're going to get into it, obviously, when we have this conversation. But um Yeah, you you mentioned at the top uh, that we just uh, had a one-year anniversary just last week, and that was the one-year anniversary of the Atlanta shooting um, at the three Asian spas where eight people were brutally massacred by gunmen, and six of them were Asian women. And that was, talk about trauma and PTSD. Um, That was really the peak, at least what we thought, of all the anti-Asian hate that was building up since COVID, right? Since early 2020. And we were afraid that something like that was gonna happen. We were afraid that the violence was gonna culminate in something so horrific. And I had said that, I had actually warned, unfortunately, it's so sad to say, I had warned my listeners and viewers earlier on because I had been so vocal about all the anti-Asian hate from the very beginning that something I had a terrible feeling that something terrible was gonna happen. That something really, really sort of unexpected and so shocking was gonna happen. And that's, that's what happened a year ago. And so when you talk about trauma and PTSD in our community, for sure, the Asian American community, this has been going on for the last two plus years because of COVID and all the xenophobia that exploded. But there's a longer history uh, that people most often don't know about uh, when it comes to the Asian American experience in this country that dates back 200 years uh, fr- from when you know Asians really first started coming here you know, in greater numbers. And so because of that lack of historical context and understanding, there's this idea that Asians are 
uh, not victimized, that they're not suffering, that there's no racism, that, oh my gosh, we're all crazy rich and educated and, you know, we have no worries. And so that's, that's a really a lot of misleading sort of narratives that unfortunately have been created by, you know, the white majority, you know, that were in control, you know, all along, you know, throughout history. And so therefore that, that misinformation and that false narrative lasts to this day. And that's why we still have these misunderstandings. We still have these incidents that are going on where we're used as a scapegoat and there's a total lack of, you know, who we are, what our identity is. And that's, that's tough. That's, it, that's been a real discovery, I think, for a lot of us, even for me. Um, and you mentioned, Deirdre, you know, that I grew up with racism and you said, you know, you kind of recognize it when you were five. I honestly, um, according to my mother, I recognized that I was different in preschool. Mm. Um, she tells me a story of when I was going to this new preschool and she was holding my hand and we were on the way to school. And I said to her in Korean, um, mom, what are the kids gonna say when they see this girl walk in with black hair? So I already knew at that point that I was gonna be different. So that's a real interesting kind of concept to consider at such a young age. And that's, yes. you know, that sticks with you, especially when it's reinforced over and over again through other incidents, you know, throughout my lifetime. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> but, it yeah. is. And as I think about the defining moments of, of our identities as people of color, it is so amazing. You literally sent chills through me when you, um, the, in the statement that you just shared that you said to your mother, because I recognize as I followed some of your work, understanding how when individuals operate from a single story and they create mm -hmm. stereotypes or even send microaggressions, the, the racism doesn't just stay external. It can impact internally how we view ourselves or even see our own Absolutely. value in who we are. And That's so right. it is an external trauma that is coming in, but we can begin to wrestle internally with, yes. with our own identity and value. How does that resonate with you? Oh my gosh, you just hit on a subject that I find fascinating because I have personally experienced it myself and I even did a show on it uh, several months back. And it was, it, I talked about internalized, internalized racism and self-hate, mm -hmm. right? That a lot of us who have been marginalized and who have been otherized and who have been treated in a way where our identity, whether that be race, ethnicity, religion, it's treated as not good enough, right? Less than. And so because of that, we're programmed to think, wait a minute, there's something wrong with me, right? Um, and so therefore we start questioning our own identity, who we are and not liking ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. When we go mm -hmm. through that process. And as children, that's what's so heartbreaking. When I look back at my childhood, yes. I definitely, and I grew up in Ohio in the 1970s and 80s. So, you know, it was a different time, certainly, you know, and especially being Asian. 
weren't a whole lot of us around. Um, so therefore, mm -hmm. I really was the alien. And so for me mm -hmm. to be made to feel less than and wanting to not be who I was and so desperately wanting to be something else, so desperately wanting to be white, mm -hmm. wanting blonde hair, wanting blue eyes, because I didn't want, I wanted to belong, right? And so that, when that starts at a young age and that's reinforced over and over again until you reach the point of saying, hey, wait a minute, no, 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 no. And then you start pushing back on it, but that took me a while. So throughout my childhood and even into sort of young, you know, young adulthood, I still really struggled with that identity crisis. And I say to my students at USC, because I teach a class on Asian American history and media and how it shaped, you know, uh, different narratives and uh, shaped stereotypes. I say, you know, when, when you're, that kind of programming is adopted by everyone, then nobody really questions mm -hmm. it because if, if whiteness uh, is the gold standard um, and that's what we're supposed to live up to, that makes it very hard for those of us who aren't that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's so true. And I think about the, that internal, that internal struggle or battle to find your authentic self and then find a place and spaces to push and uh, literally create that counter narrative intentionally to yeah. not only find who I am, stand strong unapologetically on who I am, but then also begin to raise awareness. I think why your example resonated with me so intensely was as the, what I remembered being as a child actually beaten up at school, my, my, my story, uh, the moment it really struck me that I was not wanted in the school environment, it was a very traumatic, be I literally was beaten on the playground mm. and called a mistake and um, was burned by God. And to carry that forward and having process, and I had a very supportive mother um, who uh, was able to really help me understand my value. But mm. fast forward to my youngest daughter, she went, um, I attended private schools my entire childhood. So I create that same scenario for my youngest and we were driving home. She also at this point is five years old. We're driving home and she says in from the back seat, mom, you sent me to the wrong school. And I start slowing down. <laughs> and she said, you were supposed to send me to the puffy head, puffy haired girls school. And I literally had to stop the car because I felt this rush come over me in what happened. And mm. it it is, it's when we have to be able to reconcile those traumatic stories within ourselves to yep. begin to create spaces to not only stand in who we are, but also speak to and create a platform to help others recognize how to change their story 
And before we take a break, I'd love for you just to kind of share, you've shared your heart and your truth. What prompted you to use your pain as an opportunity to create a platform and to speak specifically um, about anti-Asian hate? Well, um, in a couple of minutes before the break, I'll, I'll make it very succinct. It was an accident. <laughs> it was literally, I started the May Lee show at the very beginning of 2020 with the intention of highlighting AAPI success and entrepreneurs and celebrity and issues that we care about because I felt like there was no platform that really did that. And, you know, with all my experience as a journalist, I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll be that person. And then of course, only two months after I launched my show, the anti-Asian hate starts. And I recognize it because of all of my experience from childhood and into my adulthood dealing with racism and hate. I was like, oh my God, I see what's happening here. It's coming. So I pivoted. I lit, so I call myself the accidental activist because I didn't set out to be this vocal activist who then was looked upon as the, the voice, you know, for the AAPI community. So it's funny how sometimes you're called upon um, accidentally and you're given a purpose, um, a divine purpose. I feel like I, it was divine for me and um, I recognized it and I knew that I had no choice. And so I had to go with it and run with it. And that's, that's kind of how it happened. But, you know, since then, it's been an interesting ride so far. <laughs> yeah. I love that. How <laughs> often are we thrown into something and say, you know what? I can't stay quiet because I know too mm -hmm. much. And, yes. and the moment yes. we're given a platform, there's almost this responsibility right. where we cannot we can, yeah. uh, we, we would be doing no choice. A, um, injustice, right? Doing an injustice to our ancestry if we stay yes. quiet. Yeah. And we, uh, know, we had stayed we silent already... for so long. Yeah. We had stayed silent for so long that it was time for us to break that silence. And that's how I felt. And that's how the community is feeling now. And we can definitely go into that after the break. But yeah, it's, it's been a movement for sure. Yes. And we are just getting started unpacking the movement and this conversation. It's a brave conversation, and it is a flip side story of speaking honestly about the tension between trauma and PTSD of people of color who are, yes, still in a fight against racism, hatred, and bigotry. And as we get ready for this break, Maylee just shared how she create created a pivot. And if you have been following some of the work that Living Strong has been doing with women, our Girlfriend Gathering is launching again. Our second session of Girlfriend Gathering is this Saturday. And we're bringing women together to not just have um, finger, finger foods and wine, but to actually challenge one another to stand in our truth to do what God has called us to do and to step out in brave scenarios to create that pivot, to create that change. And so if you want to be a part of Girlfriend Gatherings, listen to the upcoming commercial and check out our website at livingstrongllc.com and find out a way to join us for our next Girlfriend Gathering. We will be right back. <music> 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. John Maxwell lets us know that change is inevitable, but growth is optional. Let's welcome in this new season of change with a clear vision for growth. Join us for session two of the Girlfriend Gathering series, Season of Change. It's designed to bring strategy and accountability to action. March 26th at 10 a.m. to 1 p.m., virtual and in person, we will turn the mirror on ourselves and take a look at our habits and how they impact our ability to grow. Each guest, whether virtual or in person, will participate in an engaging experience that will leave you equipped to conquer your goals. March 26th session, we'll have experts who provide tools on time management, making time for sustainable change, financial habits that will change your relationship with credit, and more. You will have the opportunity to network, Create meaningful relationships and accountability with growth-oriented women. You don't want to miss this opportunity to change your world. Returning guests, don't forget your homework assignment. Give your puzzle piece to someone who you think would benefit from this growth opportunity. And because you are a Voice America listener, we have a promo code for your discount ticket. It is... GFG 2022 and register at www.livingstrongllc.com. We hope to see you in the Girlfriend Gathering. It's your world. Motivate, change, succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. This is Living Strong, the flip side of adversity with Dr. Veardra Jackson. To reach the live show today, call into 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to info at livingstrongllc.com. Now, back to Living Strong, the flip side of adversity. Welcome back. And May led us out in our first segment saying that this is a movement, the opportunity to create a pivot, whether it be accidental or divine intervention. She created a purpose from her pivot that now is a platform um, for the Asian community to hear and see and walk in boldness and actually speak to the anti-Asian hate that has been brewing and is still brewing. And as we jump into our second segment, uh, Nancy, our listener, asked, she said, Dr. Jackson just shared a story that I would call intergenerational. I am personally dealing with a baseline of trauma from childhood that is impacting my life today. Mainly, do you see intergenerational trauma as an issue for you today? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, I think um, that story I shared from my childhood, and I have so many others, uh, unfortunately, um, and into adulthood, um, that stay with me. 
you know, those are scars um, from, from, you know, decades uh, of, of this kind of, yeah, otherism and racism and sometimes, yeah, physical um, bullying uh, as you share, Beardra. Mm -hmm. uh, so it does stay with you. And so I think you said something that was very powerful earlier, Beardra, that, you know, we have to take our pain and our experiences, no matter how dark and painful they might be, and try to use them for good, or at least some, you know, constructive way, right? Uh, because that pain can certainly be so self-destructive. Um, and, you know, we've all been there to a certain extent when something is so painful that you don't want to do anything, you want to stay in bed or, or worse, right? And so I decided mm -hmm. that I couldn't just sit on this and just dwell in it, that especially since I felt this calling of trying to speak up about it and share this pain and share this trauma and share this fear and anxiety that we were all going through. And once I did, it was very powerful because others then said, oh my God, I'm not alone. I don't, I, I thought I was the only one or, you know, I didn't know if I could even talk about this. And here's the thing about the Asian culture, traditionally, not so much anymore. And I love seeing that the younger generation is starting to be a little bit more open about their emotions and, you know, and, and sort of what's going on in their heads. But traditionally, we were taught not to be open. We were taught to sort of suppress everything and internalize a lot of things, keep our head down, keep going, you know, just grin and bear it. Um, there's some strength to that, but there's also some damage that can be done. And so that now is changing and I'm trying to promote that a little bit more. I do see yeah. students, my students at USC, uh, a lot of the Asian students, I thought that we had made so much progress in terms of the racism and the identity crisis and the feeling of um, not being good enough um, and undervalued. Unfortunately, my students suffer from this still. And so that tells me something about the fact that this kind of pain um, and racism and identity crisis still exists. Um, and so I hope that someone like me who is older and having gone through everything that I've gone through, me being willing to share um, and be very exposed and vulnerable, right? And we know that vulnerability mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, is actually a good thing. I, I don't think it's a weakness. I, I look at it as a, you know, a superpower. Um, I think when once you're willing to do that and show that it's okay, um, you're not going to die if you're vulnerable. Um, that it's going to be actually very empowering. So, right, getting past that fear that one, if I remember or reconcile this will it crush me mm. and and moving past that fear that actually you're still here and so yeah. when we're still here we're still we'll, we are still breathing so there is still more for us to do and there's an opportunity for us to not stay a prisoner to our past and being able to walk in that that what you were just talking about, the internal, um, cultural, past traditional, past mm -hmm. traditions, um, 
before we came on, we actually had a brief conversation around some of the parallels that we could outline or talk about between Asian American um, experiences here in these yet to be United States and those experiences of African Americans and how we also have had to struggle and find our um, footing in um, racist communities, um, in racist experiences, in um, hate crimes that we have, when we have internalized broken mm -hmm. stories, that we have created this element of interfighting, disconnection. Um, I wanted to be able to hear from you in regards to the similarities between Asian and Black experiences, yeah. anti-Asian hate and George Floyd. We went through this surgence in the media, in social media, that brought experiences that that were our own every day to the mainstream what does it what does this say about white supremacy and the building of empathy within um, recognizing what we're going through yeah right I think um, you know 2020 was such an interesting year wasn't it um, we started off with covid and then George Floyd which uh, was explosive. And then anti-Asian hate was growing too. So it was really a time of reckoning in many ways um, for this country of really being exposed to the real ugly dark side of this country. We knew it existed. We, I mean, it's not like it wasn't there all, right. all the time, right? It just was completely ripped wide open because of these really just sort of a huge incidents that, you know, obviously, like you said, got a lot of media attention. Um, and it was necessary, mm -hmm. you know, I, th I think it was uh, the silver lining was that it really exposed us all to the reality that this country has made mm -hmm. some progress, uh, but in many ways, not so much um, and maybe gone backwards mm -hmm. in some ways. Right. Um, I think that's putting it mildly. Um, but <laughs> but um, but yeah, so for me, it was so interesting to see the parallels of what our communities were going through and then look at it in a historical context too that yes. you know i mean i can't blame people for being ignorant okay if you don't open a book if you don't read mm -hmm. about history then of course you're not going to know about anything so it's not like it's your fault per se it's just that you don't have an interest but what i realized was that there really truly is a lack of proper education and um, knowledge building in this country when it comes to our own history. And our own history isn't about just the pilgrims coming to this country and that's the end of the story, right? Come on, you know? Yeah, there's a yes. lot more to this country yes. and the way it was built, right? Okay, so now, now fortunately, to a certain extent, part of history is taught in schools, right? About how this country was built on the backs of slaves, right? starting 400 years yes. ago. So at least there's some understanding of the African-American experience in this country, the ugliness of how it all occurred mm -hmm. and why there's a better understanding to a certain extent of the problems that still exist today. Okay, so I, I'm, I'm glad at least that's part of history and education. 
With Asian American history, there's zero. <laughs> it's a big goose egg. Nothing right. is taught in schools, mm-hmm. right? So if I started rattling off all these events, Chinese Exclusion Act, the Page Act, the massacre in Wyoming, um, Vincent Chin, the Japanese incarceration, I mean, on and on. Most people would be like, I have no idea what you're talking about, okay? I mean, people barely know about the Korean War and the Vietnam War. And so these are all Mm -hmm. events Mm -hmm. throughout history that have affected the Asian American experience and America in general. And yet there's so little understanding. And so for me, my point being is that we as communities of color and, you know, minority, you know, under the umbrella of white supremacy, we have to understand that there has been an invisibilization and an erasure to a certain extent of our history and our experiences. And that still continues to this day to, you know, in, in certain areas. And so we need to come together to realize that and push mainstream. And when I say that mainstream media, politics, social, you know, organization, all of that. It has to be better understood that these things, if they're not made more aware and we don't get it into the educational system and get it into entertainment and media and, you know, publications, all of that, then it's never, it's really not gonna change. We're not gonna move the needle by much. These little, you know, these big events will happen here and there, of course, George Floyd, you know, COVID, anti-Asian hate, sure. But is it gonna just be a blip? And then everybody, th- everything goes back to business as usual. Yeah, that's what I'm fighting right. for. It's like, no, 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 we can't go back to business as usual. We can't. Yeah. We cannot. I literally was just having this conversation with my husband um, just the other other morning, where although it has been our narrative, it's been our experience, and it, it's powerful what you just shared. It became. Uh, breaking news in mainstream media as social media and everyone now has a cell phone to capture Mm -hmm. everything. And so it pushes the truth. It pushes evidence of the truth out into the mainstream, but it cannot just be a moment that happened powerful moment. It brought awareness, but it cannot just be a blip. And I've had a couple of conversations in actually with clients that Living Strong has had because something I've actually challenged in scenarios that since those incidences happened, many organizations, um, school districts, uh, businesses, corporations have created these whole DEI yes. departments, diversity, equity, inclusion departments. They started popping oh up everywhere. Oh my God, they were just like, <laughs> yeah, I, and, I mean, I've never right. seen such a mad rush to do something. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, but I'd love to hear from you. So what does diversity, equity, and inclusion mean to you and why is it important if we're not going to allow what has happened to just be a blip on the screen. Well, DEI work can't just be like, you know, once a month recognizing like Black History Month or Asian American History Month. And then like everybody goes back to, again, business as usual, right? And mm-hmm. so again, if, if that was the result, all of these new departments, for, you know, to promote diversity and equity inclusion, that's great. 
but is it, how do I say this? Is it just, you know, like they're flapping their lips and they're just kind of going through the motions or are they really going to adopt policies and, you know, and really kind of implement changes? And we, when we say changes, we know what that means to a certain extent. You know, a lot of these organizations, corporations especially, you know, you look at the boardroom, you look at C-suite and you, you see who, who makes up the C-suite and the boardroom, right? And so when we have still that ceiling um, and lack of opportunity and we're not given a seat at the table, um, not gonna get very far, right? right? Not right. gonna get very right. far. And so I still see that and I, I don't see a whole lot of change. But, but look, I don't wanna slam on everyone. I see some corporations and some organizations really trying to make a difference and really making mm -hmm. the effort. And so, you know, it's baby steps. We can't expect changes overnight, but I think it, that's where I get exhausted, Virgil, and I bet you do, you do too. And I share this with my other you just activist used friends. Work. Yes. And I hear this all the time because I talk about it too. We're exhausted because we're the ones who are continuously pushing and making the noise and trying to do our best to keep that on the forefront of mm -hmm. people's minds, keep it, you know, in the media and, and whatever else, uh, what other ways we can try to get it publicized. But it's exhausting because it's a constant grind because mm -hmm. a lot of people have gone back to business as usual mm -hmm. until the next crime or the next incident. And people go, oh my God, it's terrible, terrible. And then boom. Back, back to back to their lives. I don't expect everyone to become an activist. Like I said, I didn't expect to become an activist, um, but I, I do expect people to be more supportive and try to be a little bit more curious about learning, yes. you know, about history, about current events, about, you know what I suggest to people sometimes when they want a tip, they're like, oh, how can we help? How can we help? I said, you know, just reach out to somebody, somebody that you know is, who is a person of color or yes. somebody you think has been marginalized. And I bet you have never had a real conversation with them. Mm -hmm. Have you really mm -hmm. asked them how they're doing? Have you really, like in, in a meaningful way? And if you yes. did, like if you asked Asians how they were doing, especially right now and, and you know all of this, every single one of us would be like, not so good. Mm, mm. they would they would yeah. if you yeah. honestly ask that question and I think there's that lack of connection and compassion that we need to dip into a little bit more I think there's also this element of fear of I often hear clients being afraid because very similar to what you just shared one of the baseline things that Living Strong tries to facilitate our brave, we call them brave conversations. Mm. And it's actually going in, in your discomfort. Don't shrink back, yeah. lean in and begin to see one another. Yeah. Actually see one another and ask questions that would allow your perspective or your perception to shift a bit. And I, as I was listening to one of your broadcasts, the perception, because media has quieted down, that, oh, things are better. We can go mm -hmm. back to normal. When actually the data does not support that. 
<laughs> Can no, you share actually, it, yeah, some, no. some information about that? The, the anti-Asian hate incidents have actually increased. Um, and just in the past year, there have been 11,000 plus reported incidents. And those are reported, remember. Mm -hmm. So you, usually the estimate is it's probably three times higher than the reported statistics. So, and a lot of the incidents are happening against women. And we have seen this, right? We, you know, since the Atlanta shooting, you know, just this year, Michelle Goh was the woman who was pushed in front of an oncoming subway in New York. Yes. Christina Yuna Lee was stabbed to death in her apartment. Seven Asian women were attacked um, in a span of two hours in New York. Um, a 67-year-old woman in Yonkers just two weeks ago was uh, struck 125 times when she was waiting for her the elevator in, at her apartment, uh, spit on, and called an Asian bitch. Um, so, you know, this is happening continuously. Uh, and sorry, I just grin. It's because I, it causes me such discomfort, you know, that's mm -hmm. why I just did that. Mm -hmm. It's weird mm -hmm. because I don't want to become numb to this. I do not right. want people to become desensitized to this and that it's mm -hmm. not a big deal anymore. And guess what? It doesn't make the news anymore. And that's right. what's so upsetting as an Asian woman. And I think black women too, I think there's this real deep connection with women of color, women of color, because we are the ones who are victimized the most. Yeah. We are mistreated the most. We are undervalued the most. We're unheard the most. And yet we're supposed to be strong and you know, just grin and bear it and get through it. And look at, look at the hearings of, I was you know, <laughs> you just Brown Jackson, you know, that was appalling. I mean, here's the questions. Woman. Oh, she's so overqualified. She is beyond dignified and grace under fire. And yes. she's being pummeled and flogged in public in this grotesque manner. And here she is, this woman of color who has, like Cory Booker said yesterday, you know, you are worthy, right? And that just, yes. of course, made everyone cry. But that's how we're made to feel. It's like we we are told we're not worthy, right? We're made mm -hmm. to feel we're not mm -hmm. worthy. And so when mm -hmm. these things happen and when it's ignored or when people don't mm -hmm. pay attention, it, it sort of, you know, kind of uh, confirms this idea that we're not worthy and we don't matter, right? And that mm -hmm. we're less than, our lives are less valuable. That's why the Atlanta mm -hmm. shooter was so horrific because they were all treated as sex workers. And, you know, the focus was more on the shooter because he was having, remember, a bad day. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's right. all of that that comes out and we're like, enough, you know, we're finally enough. saying enough. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, and that's literally what I was talking with my husband about. Um, as I think about, um, Judge Brown Jackson, she, her strength and her ability to hold her composure when you are thrown questions that are absolutely ridiculous, but yeah. you have to remain calm because the narrative you are fighting against is the mad black woman. Exactly. Narrative. Even though, even yeah. though you're poked and prodded and you are stabbed and you are hit and you are punched. It is the 
that I I must remain because waiting yeah. for the narrative that um, continues to stigmatize and mislabel and yep. in in some instances quiet silence yes. women. That's right. And so yeah, I it, I yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say because I think this is the problem of negative stereotypes that that have been perpetuated for decades and centuries, right? And so we're still trying to break free from those stereotypes, right? So there's the angry black woman. With Asians, mm-hmm. it's the submissive hypersexualized woman, right? And those stereotypes yes. play out all the time in real time. Right. And mm-hmm, so it's mm-hmm. so maddening because we know it's wrong. We know it's, you know, it must be dismantled. And yet we still see it play out, you know, yeah. in mainstream yeah. by elected politicians. You know, they know exactly what they're doing. And yet they get away with it. And it's just, it, I, I just, I have such respect for her. It's just like, it's, huh. it's really amazing. Power. Ah, and that, amazing. Power. When I look yeah. at her, I'm just, ah. Oh amazing power. I know. I'd love to hear from you. How do you think marginalized groups can work together to fight systemic racism? Well, first and foremost, I think we have to realize why there are these false narratives about the big sort of gap and chasm that exists between communities of color. And I'll use the model minority myth as an example, which is pretty destructive to Asians, you know? So we were, we're, we're considered the model minority myth because, you know, again, we don't make noise, we follow the rules, you know, we're good citizens and, and all that. Well, the model minority myth was created by white supremacy um, after the Japanese were released from incar- incarceration after the war. And so the Japanese basically after being imprisoned and everything stripped from them, during the war, they wanted to just get back into society and just live their lives, mm-hmm. right? Because they had to mm-hmm. start all over again. And so they actually didn't want to make noise because they were afraid that something else was going to happen to them. You know, I mean, you can't blame them, right? So right. The, white, the white supremacy system started this idea of the model minority, right? And they, those Asians, wow, look at them. They're so good, right? Why did they create that image? So then they could say to other communities of color, well, look, why can't you guys be more like them, Mm. right? And they created this wedge. It was created Mm. to to develop this wedge between communities of color so that they would never build build allyship, that they would never see each other, you know, and connect. They would keep them separated. It was brilliant. It was brilliant. You know, you have to give them credit. But what happened was mm-hmm. that it did create this wedge and this, this min- misunderstanding. But if you look at history, there are many examples of allyship between the black community, Asian community, Latino. I mean, it, it's amazing when you look back at the leadership that came together, right? Malcolm X and mm-hmm. Yuri Kojiyama, you know, Grace Lee Boggs and her husband, um, you know, um, uh, there, I mean, again, I look, of course, I'm blanking now, but Jesse Jackson came when um, to Detroit when Vincent Chin was murdered in 1982. Mm-hmm. So there's always been events that have brought mm-hmm. communities of color together. 
it's just like this narrative that still exists that, oh, no, 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 we hate each other. So there's no point in working together. So to answer your question, I think we, again, need to examine history and know where all of this came from and then have a better understanding of, oh, okay, that's why this false narrative exists. So now we have to realize that and know that we have to work together or else it's not going to change. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I also wanted to unpack for you when I think about the ability to shift narratives. So what you just shared went to my soul and that how often have we been fed a story and we've adopted it believed it and lived it out and missed out on the opportunity for creativity, innovation, rebirth, connection, community that looks true, authentic diversity, equity, and inclusion because of a lie that has created division. It brings me to thinking about our children Mm -hmm. and how would you cultivate or encourage us to cultivate healing for our future generations? It's That's a tough one, Verder, because I think we're living in such a difficult time right now, right? There's mm-hmm. such division, there's such polarization, uh, there's such negativity. Uh, social media can be a very powerful tool, but it can also be a very dangerous one because it does obviously right. um, sort of, you know, you can have all this kind of false information and it does make people feel less than, you know, when they do the comparison Mm -hmm. thing. So, um, so yeah, there's a lot of hurdles, uh, much more so than when we were growing up in terms of all the external voices and, you know, kind of like you're being inundated, right, with all these messages. Um, But I would say that, you know, part of it has to do, again, with being trying to be as truthful as possible and sharing with each other our vulnerabilities and our truth. And when I say that, I don't mean like in the, mm-hmm. you know, airy fairy way, but really just sharing our raw truth. Uh, we cannot act as if we live this perfect unscathed life. Uh, and people try uh, to project that, but I think it's really dangerous to do that, especially for young people. Um, if we can give them the opportunity to feel safer in terms of, of, of sharing their truth. And I've done that with my class, this new class. And it's amazing how when the students feel safer in terms of being able to share um, in their pain and their stories, it's incredible what comes out, really. I mean, I have been so moved by that and I'm thankful that I've been given the opportunity to you know, sort of create the space. But that's been very eye-opening to me because I realized that, you know, even young people, you know, they they have feelings and they are wise. They have a lot going on, but they're, I think, afraid to share mm-hmm. uh, because they, mm-hmm. they're afraid they're going to be judged or whatever. But we have to, we got to let go of that whole judgment, external stuff that really plagues us all. And look, I'm not saying I have all the answers and I figured it out. I, I'm, I'm, I'm about to turn 56 on Monday. Um, ugh, oh, another, yet happy another birthday one. birthday ahead of time. I know, but yeah, <laughs> not so happy. But anyway, 
but no, seriously, in, in my 50, almost 56 years on this planet, you know, I haven't figured it out, but I certainly have figured out some stuff. And that is that, you know, the more honest, truthful, vulnerable you can, you can be, um, the more fearless I've become because I realized, oh, I didn't like fall apart. You know, I'm actually okay by doing this. Yeah. Yeah. You just, the word safety for me is a foundational word. And I so appreciate that even young people, there are narratives that um, we operate from about them as well. And so being able to drop some of those narratives about um, them being lazy or not caring, like drop that stuff and really give them space to be yeah. open, honest, and we do the same. It, it creates dialogue and yeah. for them to begin to process what they're seeing, because just as you shared, everything you see on social media isn't the truth either. And so it's beginning to help them recognize that, oh, I need to be able to process this and I can process this with someone who has been through more than I have. Right. And they're not going to judge me for right. it. Right. You know right. what, may I? So value. I knew this conversation was going to be great and it has far exceeded my oh. expectations. And I cannot believe we are already at our last two minutes. I and know. I want to make sure that people, people get a chance to one, what are you working on now and how can people follow you? Oh gosh, I have so many plates spinning in the air. It's kind of exhausting, but yes. So I still have my show, The May Lee Show, which is a vodcast. So it's on you know YouTube in video form, but then audio form, podcast form on all major podcast platforms. Um, I am, like I said, I'm teaching at uh, USC as an adjunct professor, School of Journalism. And I do teach this class I developed uh, recently called Evolution of Asian Americans and the Media. So it goes through the history of mm -hmm. Asian Americans and how the media misinformed and misled, you know, sort of the narrative. Um, I'm writing a book, but don't get excited about it. This is my second book, but this is an academic book. And I swear to you, I will never write another academic book ever again. It's so dry, <laughs> but it's about how to be on the air, how to be a broadcaster and use your voice and things like that. But oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just, seriously, I can't wait till I'm done with that. Um, yeah. And so I, and then I'm just kind of continuing my activism. Um, and just trying to do what I can, you know? Uh, one person can make a difference. You don't have to change the world, but do something, you know, do something. And right there, drop the mic. Because I feel like people sometimes, they get so caught up in, oh, this the problem is so big, what difference yes. would I make? You can. And just as you said, one person creates that ripple effect but we have to do something. It cannot just, we, we have a responsibility. Yes. Well, we May, thank you again thank for you. your honesty, your vulnerability, and your truth to raise our awareness as well as to really come just straightforward in this conversation. So if you have enjoyed this conversation, we encourage you to share it, share it with someone. This might be the opening step for someone to just 
shift of perspective. And you could be the one that shares this episode with someone and open the door for a conversation. So be purposeful with this. And as always, meet us back here every Thursday, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for another flip side conversation. We will be with you again next week. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to Living Strong, the flip side of adversity. Please join your host, Dr. Veerdra Jackson, for another edition of our show next Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a great week. Oh, 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 oh,